Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when an argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said... I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. Today, we are delighted to be bringing you a special episode with a very special guest on a topic many of you have asked about, Supreme Court reform and the Biden Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. We are delighted to have, as the special guest, one of the people who testified at the first public hearing at which the commission received testimony, Professor Nicholas Nico Bowie. Welcome to the show, Nico. Thanks for having me. So Nico is an assistant professor of law at Harvard Law School. He is a historian who has a PhD in American studies in addition to a JD, and he writes about federal and state constitutional law and local government law. He's also on the board of Lawyers for Civil Rights, which advocates on behalf of immigrants and people of color, Mass Vote, People's Parity Project, and others. And this past year, he was the recipient of the Sachs-Freund Teaching Prize at Harvard Law School. So... Nico, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because your testimony really caught a lot of people's eyes and ears. So for those of you listeners who didn't have a chance to read his testimony yet, since you all should read it at some point, um, could you tell us kind of briefly what your testimony to the commission was as far as what the commission should think about as they are considering various reforms? Yeah, so I was asked specifically uh, to answer the commission's question about how should they evaluate reforms to the Supreme Court um, and sort of what they should use to evaluate the arguments, what the current debate is, et cetera. So we were the first panel just setting up the conversation. Uh, And my answer is that we should want to live in a democracy. And I thought we were a republic, not a democracy. (laughs) Yeah, no. So it turns out that's like a descriptive and a normative issue. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, you know, I, regardless of where we live right now, I would like to live in a democracy. And so <laughs> I urge the commission to think about reforms that will make the United States more democratic. And since the commission is the commission on the Supreme Court, uh, the reforms that I proposed were all about the Supreme Court and making the Supreme Court into a agent of democracy as opposed to this countervailing force, uh, which it has historically operated as and which it's currently structured to operate as. So maybe we could elaborate kind of on both of those points, both the historical argument and the political theory of the court before we actually dive into the substance. Um, So I guess I just invite you to share more both about the historical argument about how the Supreme Court has functioned with respect to democracy, as well as its institutional structure vis-a-vis democracy. I think when most people think of the Supreme Court, especially law students, uh, the story sort of starts with Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. And the court presents itself and is often thought of as, you know, this check on the excesses of democracy that harm political minorities or do bad things. But what that story really uh, unfortunately ignores is the decades of history that preceded Brown versus Board of Education Um, And so when the Supreme Court held that segregation was unconstitutional, it came, you know, 70 years after the Supreme Court held that Congress had no power to eliminate racial segregation. Um, And after the Civil War, when Congress passed all of these laws that 
were designed to enfranchise former slaves, to uh, give formerly enslaved people uh, civil rights and political rights and allow them to, you know, function as people in free society. Uh, the Supreme Court basically invalidated all of these federal laws. Um, so it said that, you know, Congress had no power to pass an anti-discrimination law because the 14th Amendment only applies to states. Uh, it held that the 13th Amendment, which empowered Congress to eliminate the vestiges of slavery, uh, did not authorize Congress to pass, you know, laws to prohibit lynching. Um, it prohibited Congress from punishing lynch mobs or people that went around just shooting black voters. The Supreme Court disempowered Congress and then watched as all of these states stepped in in the 1880s and 1890s and started passing Jim Crow laws. And then when the court looked at those laws, they were like, great, you know, uh, separate but equal. That sounds fantastic. And so Brown, you know, in 1954, is the Supreme Court sort of repudiating one line of its precedent, saying, actually, we think that segregation isn't so great. Uh, but it never repudiated the second line in which it held that Congress lacked all this power to you know, enfranchise people and expand American democracy. And that's the problem that I focus on in the testimony, is the problem in which the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution differently from Congress and says that Congress lacks the power to you know, enact a health care law or expand health insurance to uh, millions of Americans because, you know, it's not within the general welfare. Um, or when it says that Congress can't pass a Voting Rights Act because it's not appropriate. Um, you know, th all that represents is just the Supreme Court disagreeing with Congress about the meaning of these very vague phrases in the Constitution. And that's pretty anti-democratic given how the Supreme Court is structured relative to Congress. So maybe we could talk more about this claim vis-a-vis -vis the court's decision in Brown, because I think you presented your argument as kind of a response or an alternative to a common theory that is associated with the courts and that is supposed to explain the role of the courts in a democracy, namely political process theory. So law students are probably familiar with or have encountered this theory. It is associated most with Caroline Products, footnote four, or John Hart Ely's book, Democracy and Distrust. And the idea was that the court would step in to review laws that limited access to the political process or that negatively affected discrete and insular minorities who faced prejudice and therefore weren't prevailing as often as they should in the political process. And this theory had a few good years during the <laughs> Warren court, you know, in decisions like Baker versus Carr or Reynolds versus Sims, in which the court enforced the one person, one vote guarantee that prohibited, you know, gerrymanders that packed too many people into some districts and not enough people into others. Um, but for me, you know, your historical argument about the role of the court tees up this interesting question that I often struggle with in thinking about constitutional law, which is when do we use history and practice to discard a theory? That is, I completely agree with you that the court has never embraced political process theory or elision, you know, representation reinforcing judicial review, and in fact has acted in ways that are affirmatively hostile to it and disempowered the political branches from making our country more democratic. But at what point do we say, well, that's just their imperfect or deeply flawed practice at doing yeah. so? Should we still hold out the possibility that maybe they could do it someday? Yeah, so I have... Two big responses to that. One is historical and one is formal. Um, and so the formal response is, I think there's a really important formal distinction between when the Supreme Court reviews the constitutionality of state laws versus when it reviews the constitutionality of federal laws. To explain that distinction, I think it helps to, which I, which I do in a testimony, talk through the history of this specific statute, the Ku Klux Klan Act. So in 1871, when Congress is passing all of these civil rights laws, one of the laws it passes uh, basically invites private litigants, just ordinary people, to sue when a state deprives them of their constitutional rights. And this was part of the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was designed to disrupt you know, this terrorist organization, um, which included many sheriffs and state actors. And so it was like if a state actor prohibits you from voting, then you can sue them. 
And what Congress was essentially doing was drafting federal courts into protecting the political process. It was saying states are not doing this on their own. So, you know, we cannot just pass laws overturning every time a state disenfranchises someone. We need someone to, you know, go around and enforce it. And so Congress said, federal courts, you, it is your job to go and enforce the Constitution, as well as federal laws, with respect to states. Um, and so that law today is known as 42 U.S.C. 1983, where it is in the federal code. Um, but it's essentially a congressional invitation for the Supreme Court to review state laws. And so for a very long time, the court just ignored that. So when Alabama said, we're just going to disenfranchise our entire black population in the name of white supremacy and just like made their whole convention about that, the Supreme Court said, well, you know, we, we see the problem, but... I don't know what you expect us to do about it. So we're just going to allow Alabama to disenfranchise all its black people. And in the 50s and 60s, this is what the court reversed. The court said, actually, you know, we, we do think that we have a role to play in enforcing constitutional and federal law with respect to states. And so the cases you just named are all examples of the court uh, reviewing state laws for interfering with the democratic or the political process. Um, and so the, the historical argument there is the court's just been really inconsistent about that. You know, there are like some cases in which the court has held that, you know, racial gerrymandering is a problem. Some cases in which it's held that, you know, it's fine to pack people into districts so long as they're doing it for partisan reasons as opposed to racial reasons, even if it's the same thing. You know, it, it, it goes back and forth. And I think there's certainly a, a partisan or ideological dimension as to like which of those decisions uh, I or you or anyone else would think are good or bad. Uh, but the formal problem is that when the court gets one of these decisions wrong, so when the court says that, you know, a state can't do something or a government can't do something, there's no way for Congress to disagree with the court. And that makes it really different from when the court enforces most federal law. So when Congress passes the Civil Rights Act and says, enforce this, courts, and courts say, okay, a state law that prohibits people from, uh, like, you know, people of color from doing something, like that law is struck down. You know, if, if the court gets that wrong, Congress can just amend the law and say, you, you got this wrong, do it again. Uh, but when it comes to enforcing the Constitution, we have a system in which Congress currently does not exercise any oversight over the court's interpretations. So when the court gets something wrong, or if you or I disagree with the court, our only solution is amending the Constitution. And that's a really big problem. Um, and so the, the difficulty, again, that I focus on in the testimony is the court's overall power would be far less objectionable if there were a democratic institution or a relatively democratic institution like Congress that could exercise oversight over the court and say, look, you know, we think that you got this case wrong. Here is a better outcome. Or, um, you know, we think that this whole line of precedent is going the wrong direction. Let's rein it in. Um, and when Congress has attempted to do that, uh, so in the 1990s, it famously attempted to do that. Uh, the Supreme Court has resorted to these post-Reconstruction precedents and said, no, it is our job to interpret the Constitution alone. When we say something is appropriate, it's appropriate. When we say it's not, it's not. And there are simply no examples of the court playing this sort of like political process role with respect to the federal government. Um, and so the overall argument of the testimony is that Congress is just a better institution at interpreting the Constitution and ensuring that states comply with it than the Supreme Court is. It's a more democratic institution. Historically, it's just done better than the court, uh, just empirically. And for those two reasons, the court alone is just not a great primary supreme institution to run a democracy. But it is the law. It is king, um, or so it tells me. So maybe I could just ask two follow-ups about that. Um, one is whether, and just thinking through a hypothetical here, let's think about some decisions that this Supreme Court has indicated some interest in and whether the problem with those decisions would be less or sufficiently non-existent if Congress could change them. So the two examples I have in mind are some issues related to the Supreme Court and state law with respect to elections. So one example is Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. That is the decision where 
a bare majority of the Supreme Court, when both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Kennedy were on the court, said states could choose to have independent commissions draw legislative districts rather than legislators, thus attempting to avoid the problem of partisan gerrymandering, where legislators draw districts that give one political party an advantage relative to others. And the other is the so-called independent state legislature doctrine. This is the doctrine first spelled out in Bush versus Gore and that Justice Kavanaugh indicated some interest in during the 2020 election cases in which the Supreme Court says that state legislators and state legislatures alone have the authority to make the rules regarding state elections. State courts can't do so and neither can state executives. And therefore, if state courts either misinterpret state law to a sufficient degree or if a state executive does something that's not authorized by state statute, it's for a federal court to say, you know, you've basically usurped the state legislature's power um, in order to make the laws regarding voting. And I guess I think both of those doctrines have real anti-democratic potential, you know, in the hands of this Supreme Court and the lower federal courts. And I think I also think that I would think the same thing even if Congress had the authority to say, well, yes, Supreme Court gets to say a state can't adopt independent districting commissions on its own, but we Congress could decide to do that if we wanted to. Or we Congress could write a statute that says, you know, state executives or state courts get the authority to, you know, interpret state laws regarding voting rights or expand voting rights if we wanted to. Like, I would still think that that Supreme Court review of those state decisions is pretty anti-democratic. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, just one note about the independent legislature uh, doctrine. I think it's just so crazy that the current Supreme Court has three people who represented Bush's team in Bush versus Gore. And so this argument that just sat dormant for 20 years is all of a sudden getting revived by the people who made it up when they were, <laughs> when they were representing George Bush. I, I don't know if fans of the podcast are into the law politics distinction, but it does really threaten it. Um. I think that they are. I think they are very into that distinction, particularly since Sam Alito gives them fodder for that distinction basically yeah. every week. So, yes. I know. It's like basically just coincidence that he was not on the team because he was too occupied with his own. I know. They, they really missed out on a good one there. He would have brought some real strong emotional Alito energy to that team for sure. Yeah. But I mean, to, to the hypothetical, I mean, so first of all, one, one just important observation is that Congress also suffers from, you know, a huge democratic deficit, you know, the existence of all sorts of things from the filibuster and the Senate's disproportionate of representation to the way that districts are created. Like Congress is not a perfect democracy by any means. Uh, it's just relatively more democratic than the Supreme Court. Um, but even if Congress were this ideal democracy, it's certainly plausible that democratic institutions can produce anti-democratic results. I mean, you see that all the time. Like, legislatures make bad calls. They pass laws that really harm people. They pass laws that disenfranchise people. They pass laws that turn a democracy into something else. You know, that that is something that needs to be avoided. The question that I pose in the testimony is just, okay, like, we all want to avoid democratic collapse. It's just a question of how. And the Supreme Court's just bad at it. You know, when the Supreme Court tried to prevent political collapse before the Civil War, it produced Dred Scott. It was like, here's our solution. You know, we're <laughs> going to resolve the political problem of the day with a decision that prohibits Black people from ever becoming citizens. It, it has a very bad track record. Um, and so the idea of, you know, a institution coming up with something bad leads to the question of, okay, so what is the best way of fixing bad decisions? And right now when Congress, you know, if Congress were to authorize courts or if Congress just directly were to pass a law saying, you know, like no mail-in voting or no independent redistricting commissions, um, yeah, that would be bad. The solution would be, okay, we need to organize and campaign and get this law repealed. But when the Supreme Court holds the same thing, you know, you can't do that. That, that option is off the table. The next option is, okay, I guess we have to amend the Constitution by getting two-thirds of both houses and three-quarters of the states to reverse the court's precedent. 
or, you know, expand the court or mess with the justices to force them to change their minds. And so in dealing with this sort of like bad outcome, the main advantage of democracy is it also puts change back in the hands of the people as opposed to, you know, hoping that this uh, unelected body is going to exercise its discretion more favorably. One question that I posed to my students uh, this past semester was, you know, just to imagine that you lived in a dictatorship where the dictator happened to align with your values. You know, so like you live in a dictatorship in which the dictator went to Harvard Law School, where I teach, um, and they sort of are like the typical Harvard Law student. They share all of your politics for the most part. Um, and so if you like a Green New Deal, so does the dictator. If you like uh, reproductive justice, so does the dictator. Um, you know, it, it could be a really nice society until the dictator changes their mind. And then, you know, you're screwed. <laughs> then what are you going to do? You have to, you know, first get rid of the dictator. And the Supreme Court, I feel, is very similar, where it can issue some great decisions um, and decisions that you can really strongly agree with and think this is how the world should be. But to the extent that the decisions are being made in a manner that isn't democratic or at least overseen by a democratic institution, uh, then if it gets it wrong, uh, you know, you're in real trouble. Yeah, I think that that to me is how I talk myself down or at least away from <laughs> this fear that what we are telling people is, you know, to fix how skewed our elections are or to fix, you know, the rigging of elections, be it through partisan gerrymandering or voter suppression by using the elections that are rigged by those things to fix them. Yeah. But I, I think, right, that is the kind of best solution in a world of very bad ones, um, you know, particularly with the world the way it looks now. Historically, that's true. You know, it's a legislature in which women were disenfranchised is what enfranchised women. A legislature in which Black people were disenfranchised is what enfranchised Black people. It wasn't the court. Right. And so, you know, democratic institutions, like one major advantage of democratic institutions is by uh, putting political power in the hands of people as political equals and saying, we all deserve to participate. It creates a huge moral um, claim for disenfranchised communities to participate. It makes it very difficult to rationalize excluding them. This is true worldwide, that democracies can be self-reinforcing by, you know, when people are excluded, they demand to participate. And when they do participate, they exercise that power to continue expanding the franchise. And so, of course, it can contract and, of course, it can lead to bad outcomes. But we have a lot of historical precedents of excluded people demanding and exercising power through legislative processes as opposed to through judicial processes. I did want to reinforce this point that, you know, what we are saying is in part the idea that the better institution to make these decisions in is the one that is more democratically accountable um, in structure and design. And not necessarily that that institution is always or necessarily going to be producing better decisions like vis-a-vis either yeah. democracy or like particularly affected groups. You know, I think the example of segregation and what the redemption court did to reconstruction is a particularly powerful one because there you really do have Congress attempting to achieve by legislation what the court did, you know, 60 to 70 years later and what the court prevented Congress from doing, you know, those 60 years before. Um, but, you know, in other areas, be it Native American affairs or immigration, it's not like Congress was all that great, you know, for groups who were excluded from the political process. You know, Congress was deferring citizenship for Native Americans um, and engaging in like aggressive claims of like empire and exclusion. Um, but, you know, again, the like political theory of democracy gave the people a claim for like why Congress was in the wrong to do so and also like a vehicle to attempt to change that. So that's just something that I would kind of add to the historical account. The examples that you just listed are examples in which the Supreme Court weighed in. Yeah. You know, the and Supreme they gave Court, it two thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. It was like, oh, you want to prevent Native Americans from being citizens? Excellent. <laughs> 14th Amendment be damned. Like they're not citizens. Uh, you want to exclude Chinese immigrants? Fantastic. Go nuts. And these decisions are not just, um, it, it, it's not just tolerance. It's not just, oh, the Supreme Court's going to keep its eyes closed while Congress does these bad things. Like th these decisions are inviting Congress to continue. And it basically forecloses further debate. So when the Chinese exclusion case says, 
you know, Congress can do this. Congress can exclude whoever it wants. So says the Constitution. So says us. Like that marks the end of congressional debate over the constitutionality of immigration restrictions. And so with the first immigration law uh, was part of the Alien and Sedition Act, and it was uh, allowed to expire because so many people, you know, like including James Madison, thought it was unconstitutional. But when the Supreme Court weighs in and says, yep, you can exclude whoever you want, including a particular racial group, that ends the debate. I'm so glad you said that specifically about the Chinese exclusion cases, because that is actually part of my argument for the article that I have been working on in the pandemic about (laughs) habeas. Uh, So notice to the editors of the Texas Law Review and my tenure reviewers, uh, Nico has validated my argument. Um, Secondly, and more seriously, um, I think the, you know, part of the idea that you were alluding to that Congress wants the Supreme Court weighs in or the people wants the Supreme Court weighs in think that ends the debate, right? And that alleviates our need to kind of engage with the constitutional issues is this idea of a juristocracy, you know, the that the structure of judicial review and our constitutional culture as we know it pretends or acts as though, you know, the Supreme Court knows more about the Constitution or has more expertise in telling us what the Constitution means that they're, and that their resolution of these issues kind of removes our obligation or a necessity for us to think about them. Um, And there was one particular moment in your testimony that I want to play for our listeners here, where you kind of invite the commission to think about their own role as lawyers and law professors vis-a-vis the Supreme Court. I will only add here that it was not easy for me to criticize the Supreme Court in my written testimony, just as I imagine it will not be easy for any of you to criticize the court in your final recommendations. As members of the elite, as academics and as lawyers, our influence with our students and our clients currently depends on our ability to maintain close connections with federal judges. It harms our careers to alienate judges and it helps our careers to praise them. In this respect, asking lawyers and law professors to testify about reforming the Supreme Court is like asking a worker to testify about whether their boss is doing a good job. If they look over their shoulder and say everything is fine, I can understand their hesitation. But I think our commitment to democracy demands that we be honest about the harm the Supreme Court as an institution causes. We are all harmed when some of us can't afford health care because the court declared the expansion of Medicaid unconstitutional. We are all harmed when some of us cannot vote because the court rendered the Voting Rights Act ineffective. And we are all harmed when some of our younger colleagues are harassed at the beginning of their legal careers by judges to whom no one ever says no. It is time for us to raise our expectations for how democratic our country and our profession can become. We must not be afraid of alienating our social betters or fear how the people might rule without them. We must take inspiration from democracies the United States once inspired but which have taken our ideals far beyond what we allow ourselves. Democratizing the Supreme Court will be hard, but we must do it. You know, just to kind of like spell this out to our listeners, um, you know, it is like a, a serious like pat on the back or, you know, pat on the head for an academic to get their work cited by the Supreme Court or by a federal court of appeals. It's a good thing, you know, for law professors to be able to help their students get clerkships if they want them. And that power structure is something that kind of enables this or is at least a kind of manifestation of, I think, the dynamic, you know, that you're referring to there. Yeah, So I was really honored to be invited to participate in the commission, but I also don't have tenure. And so my own thought about it was, well, you know, I don't really want to criticize anybody because they're going to control my future. Um, (laughs) Like a bunch of people on the commission are eventually going to review my tenure file. And, uh, you know, anything that I say uh, could affect my future employment. And I felt like that, to me, was an illustration of the problem with the commission itself, because it was like, you know, in in some respect, you know, tenured law professors are the most powerful, you know, they have the most powerful jobs in the planet, given relative to their employer, in the sense that they can't be fired. But relative to federal judges, 
judges exercise a tremendous amount of authority over, uh, you know, or discretion at least over what uh, law professors can say or do. And uh, the examples you said are good ones. I personally would focus on clerkships. I think, you know, I have students who I write recommendations for and um, I know that for many of my colleagues, it's really important to maintain close connections to judges in order um, to help our students. Um, and it, you know, it also helps us, uh, you know, attract research assistants and to, um, you know, become, you know, presences on campus and to get invited places. Like having a good relationship with federal judges uh, is a big deal. And so to invite a bunch of us, and, and this is not even mentioning litigators who actually have right. to go and present arguments on behalf of clients in front of the courts. But so courts just occupy a very high uh, position within American legal culture that makes them very difficult to criticize because they can affect us personally um, on the basis of our criticism and without us knowing it. You know, I, I hope that the commission presents uh, a case for reform or at least does not poo-poo it <laughs> too harshly. But I, I had to admit going into it that I'm a little skeptical to ask people to criticize judges who can retaliate. Um, and that's what it comes down to. It comes down to retaliation. You know, judges can retaliate against litigators. They can retaliate against law professors uh, in very subtle ways. And they can obviously retaliate against Congress and against states. So uh, there, there isn't really an institutional check on the discretion of a judge. And to the extent that that's defended in the name of judicial independence, uh, I think it has to be judicial independence compared to what? Um, because I, for one, do not want to live in a country that is run by judges as independent as they may be. I want to live in a democracy. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to reinforce uh, the idea, I, I think it is true that judges can retaliate in subtle ways. And I say this as someone who has received a um, public dressing down by a federal judge uh, for speaking out about the behavior of another federal judge, as well as having other federal judges, like, tell other people that I am a crazed person engaged in this, like, you know, wild-eyed campaign to get judges stop harassing their law clerks. So, you know, this happens, like, judges are people, you know, even though they are independent people with life tenure. Um, it's just, you know, part of how it goes. Calling all Crooked Media fans, we need your feedback, and we're 100% prepared to bribe you for it. This is a new way for those of you who love Crooked content and our mission to make your voices heard. It's your chance to influence everything from merch designs to our digital content to what Lovett eats for lunch. Okay, I guess. That last part's a joke, obviously. He's ordering Panda Express again and no one can stop him. That's I'm true, reading that's this. That's true, that's true. Did they not know I was going to read this? <laughs> Here's how it works. Just fill out a survey about your Crooked podcast preferences and you're in. We'll reach out to you when we need your opinion, and you'll get a promo code to the Crooked store every time you participate. So sign up, help us out, because Tommy gets scared when you show up at his gym to tell him about your t-shirt ideas. That is true. It was a good idea, though. Go to crooked.com slash insiders to join today. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Um... So you testified before the end of the Supreme Court term. Then the Supreme Court term ended with a bang. Uh, Want to update your testimony at all? Or I guess um, like one, one addition I would make is 
you know, we have been talking so far about the real anti-democratic difficulties when the Supreme Court precludes Congress from correcting or adopting a different constitutional interpretation. That is, the Supreme Court is anti-democratic when it invalidates acts of Congress. But at the end of term, we also kind of see how it can be anti-democratic in interpreting acts of Congress. You know, Brnovich versus DNC obviously rendered quite toothless um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And we've talked about that on previous episodes. And I completely get how removing the power to invalidate goes a big step in the right direction. Because, of course, you know, Congress could, after Brnovich, write a statute that says, no, when we prevented states from adopting laws that result in discrimination on the basis of race, we actually meant laws that result in, you know, disparate burdens on different racial groups, you know, notwithstanding any of the other factors you incorporate into the analysis. Yeah, just, just repass it with some underline. <laughs> right, exactly. All caps, <laughs> underline, italics, large font, right? We meant what we said. Um But I guess, you know, part of my hesitation about using this theory or this idea as the metric or the only metric for um, Supreme Court reform is litigators and I think Congress like rely on the courts to enforce the statutes Mm -hmm. as written. Um, And it's true, Congress could always come back and rewrite a statute, right, in clearer fashion, right, and to like override a Supreme Court decision. But, right, that could happen an awful lot if you have a Supreme Court, you know, so wedded to the political or ideological project that motivated Brnovich or the Supreme Court that has adopted such stingy interpretations of Title VII, like in Vance versus Ball State or Nasser versus, you know, UT Southwestern, which just made it more difficult for plaintiffs to pursue retaliation or harassment claims under Title VII. So, Is that just what you get if you accept that the most important thing and the thing we just need to prioritize is, you know, making change through a democratic institution and saying that that is the ultimate check? You know, yes, like will leave us with a bunch of courts that could consistently interpret statutes in ways that undermine them, but Congress can always come back and fix it? Or is that just not part of the project or analysis? So I frame the testimony as an opposition to judicial review, which I defined very precisely uh, to, to mean when a federal court declines to enforce a federal law. So that that's what happens in a case like Shelby County, in which the court declines to enforce the Voting Rights Act on a theory that it's not appropriate under the 15th Amendment. Um, and you're right that it doesn't necessarily include Brnovich, um, but I think it's the same issue in which the court's looking at the statute and just thinking like, no, we're just not going to enforce the statute because we think it's too radical or we think that it's too much. Um, not this is what we thought Congress meant. It's just too, too much. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the issue that you're raising is one that I think is, um, you know, sort of inherent in government in which courts are necessary to enforce laws. To the, to the extent that there is a separation of powers, that uh, Congress passes laws and then the members of Congress themselves do not go out and enforce those laws. Like there is going to be issues of interpretation. It'll be either by the president or by courts. And I don't think it's possible necessarily to um, eliminate interpretation, uh, even if the people interpreting the laws, uh, you know, if like a presidential administration just says, we think this law is stupid, so we're just not going to enforce it. Or if a court says, uh, you know, we think that this law means something different than what Congress meant. I do think that is an argument for making the Supreme Court's exercise of its power more equitable. Um, So I think the primary argument is to disarm the court of its, what I called it in the testimony, this anti-democratic superweapon. So to take judicial review of federal laws away, I think that would help a lot. And we can talk about what that means, but to have a court system in which their only job is to enforce what Congress asks of them. Um, But I still think, you know, even, even if that's all that federal courts did, it would still be a problem if, you know, appointments by one political party just control this very powerful institution for 50 years on the basis of when people choose or not choose to retire or when they happen to die. Um, And so I think that there are better ways of making the distribution of 
judges and justices more equitable. And so I'm sympathetic to arguments like, um, you know, the argument to have a rotating system of getting appeals judges on the Supreme Court or, uh, you know, term limits or, um, you know, other alternatives to our current exclusive form of appointment. But I, I would call it a secondary issue. I would call it a secondary issue to the primary problem that we have allowed this unrepresentative body to exercise the supreme authority of deciding what we as a nation are allowed to do. Um, and so I think democratizing the Supreme Court includes both uh, making sure that its exercise of power is democratically accountable, but also um, could include ensuring that the people who occupy this position um, are uh, you know, democratically rotated or otherwise disempowered. So it's not just one or nine people exercising lifetime authority to decline to enforce whatever laws they want. But then I'll have to come up with so many different nicknames for so many different justices. So it will make my job harder. Um, I would I would gladly take that hit, though. Um, yeah, just like there. 500 judges. <laughs> right, exactly. You'd have to have baseball cards or something. Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, so I guess how do or how should progressives or liberals think about walking and chewing gum at the same time? Because I read your testimony to be part of – I'm going to use a phrase, and it sounds pejorative, but I don't mean it pejoratively, as part of like a delegitimation campaign, right, to attack the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and its current role in our constitutional democracy and the role of the federal courts more broadly. And I think that that is absolutely warranted, you know, for the reasons you gave in your testimony and the reasons we've discussed today. Um, but I also think that delegitimation campaign makes it hard to simultaneously put forward an affirmative progressive agenda for the courts and to get progressives to care about judicial appointments or to say, like, well, we will appoint judges who will do X, Y, and Z. So I guess, like, how should progressives think about trying to do both or maybe giving up on the second, you know, to do the first? I certainly don't think they should give up the second. The way I think about it in particular is there are many there are many laws that I would like to see Congress pass. There are many ways I would like to see the United States become a more just society. I would like to see us, you know, embrace reproductive justice. I would like us to do something about this impending climate crisis. I would like us to resolve inequities and inequality in wealth and um, you know the racial wealth gap to so many forms of injustice worldwide. So I, I have like a list of laws that I would love to see passed. And literally, for every one of those laws, I can think of a way in which the Supreme Court could either invalidate them or make them ineffective. I can easily, easily, easily imagine them striking down, you know, the Women's Health Protection Act or striking down the New Voting Rights Act or even the one that uh, Joe Manchin has been promoting, which would, you know, make nationwide Section 5's uh, old rule or, you know, HR1 or just... You know, it, it's like a very easy, it's an easy exercise. It's just, this is the stuff of con law professor exams. It's just, here's the law. Tell me how you would strike it down if you didn't like it. Um, and it's very difficult to come up with a law that you can't think of that for. And so I think this goes hand in hand with literally any agenda, uh, whether it's a progressive agenda or a conservative agenda. It's just really hard to think of an agenda that would not survive uh, federal courts. Because right now we have a system in which the laws that are allowed to be enforced depend on the discretion of these nine people, specifically five of them, forever. <laughs> Can't just win 2022 elections, like forever. So long as they're on the court, they are going to exercise this power. And so I think it's not just a question of walking and chewing gum. It's like chewing gum while breathing. It's like if, if you don't do the, the breathing part. Like, you will die. Democracy will yeah. die. <laughs> <laughs> So, so from that perspective, it's just you know, like, what do you care about? Because if what you care about requires a law, it's not going to survive <laughs> if the Supreme Court doesn't like it. I'm definitely with you there. Um, and the last completely unrelated point, um, but I saw you tweeting about this, and it's something that I think about, but we haven't talked about on the podcast, um, which is, how do you strike a balance between, you know, what people say is an alarmist reading of Supreme Court decisions or, as we were just talking about, you know, an alarmist reading about what the Supreme Court might do, you know, to democratically enacted legislation 
with you know what they say in their opinions are possible limits on those opinions. So this issue came up in opinions ranging from Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, in which the court you know adopts a new definition of takings, but then says, but there are all these limits on this definition that might not call into question you know civil rights statutes like Title VII or decisions like TransUnion, you know, which invalidated one statutory cause of action but might not invalidate all the others, or you know June Medical Services versus Rousseau, or like you name it, you know, a decision in which some people are saying, you know, taken to its logical conclusion, this decision could have these extremely far-reaching consequences, notwithstanding the Supreme Court's line or two that says, you know, this decision isn't the end of the world. I guess the way I would approach this question is thinking about the Supreme Court at its most self-aware. So the most self-aware Supreme Court opinion, I think, is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, in which the court was asked to overrule Roe versus Wade and the three justice plurality said, no, and here's why not. Or at least <laughs> we're not going to reverse the essential holding of Roe, what that means. Um, but here's why not. And the court's answer was roughly, we get our power, not from our control over troops, not over control over money. We get our power from the public's perception that what we are doing is in principled analysis of what the Constitution means. Like, to the extent that that is not true, we have no power. And so if we were to overrule this because, you know, three new Republican justices were appointed, uh, people would no longer think that what we are doing is um, principled exercise of interpreting the Constitution, and we would just be nine people, you know, writing opinions to ourselves like law professors. So I think the court, current justices all recognize that. I think Justice Breyer, like I think his current campaign is very much in this line of if people do not think that what the court is doing is principled analysis, then the court just has no power. Like its power depends on its public relations campaign. Um, and so every time the justices go out and say there are no Trump justices and no Obama justices, or they say we are not politicians in robes, or like that, that is them reinforcing their own power. So I think from their perspective, uh, it is a really strong challenge to say that, no, like what you are doing is the same sort of exercise of discretion that I would be doing if I were up there, <laughs> that anyone would be doing if they were there, which is like, sure, you may want to reach the right answer. It just happens to align with everything else you think is the right answer. Like, I think the right type of government is a libertarian one in which there are no regulations. Like, it's not surprising that your interpretations lead to these sorts of outcomes. And so we also live in a country where right now, on the basis of this power, everything the court says just depends on their discretion. It's not as though we, the people, are checking them. It's not as though Congress is checking them. No one's checking them. It's just their discretion. It's what they think goes. And so when they issue an opinion, and the opinion is, here is the new principle, and we think the limit should be X, you know, then you, you can read that opinion and say, the court says X is safe. Or you can read the opinion saying, like, right now, right. <laughs> as an exercise <laughs> of their discretion, they wrote that. But next year, when X comes up, they might change their minds. Um, and for litigants, and I think for many law professors, the public relations move aligns with that of the court. Because if you're a litigant and you go up before the court a lot, and they issue an opinion that says X is safe. If you have clients who are going to be harmed by the removal of X, like you want to reinforce that too. You want to say X is safe, says the court. The right. court says X is safe. Like in a landmark decision, the court says X is safe. <laughs> it's like it's in your interest to try to build up as much political capital as possible to make overturning X difficult. But ultimately, it does depend on just the court's discretion. And so I think for my own, like when, when I read an opinion and the court announces this very general rule and it just says, trust us, you know, we won't, we won't harm the things that you care about. It's still just up to them to, you know, decide whether or not they're going to adhere to that promise. And absent any checks on what the court does, other than like a common acknowledgement that this is just a discretionary body that's interpreting the law as it sees fit, then I think it's really dangerous to subscribe to a view that what they are just doing is, you know, principled 
uh, objective analysis of the correct solution, as opposed to, you know, it's basically just a jury for life. It's like you get nine people in a room and they're going to come up with answers that you may not have come up with if you were in there. And so just as we do not trust a single jury to decide all cases, it's it's really dangerous to trust the same nine people to decide every issue that comes before them forever. And I think that's also what I tell myself I am doing when I say, you know, under this decision, you know, this could threaten the validity of Title VII, even if I don't think there are currently five votes on the court to say Title VII constitutes, you know, an unconstitutional taking. And the reason I say that is because the only kind of mechanism we have to challenge the Supreme Court or to impose some democratic constraints on it is through popular organizing or by getting members of Congress to care about what the Supreme Court is doing to pay attention to them, which then influences the Supreme Court. And I think that is not a great, nor is it a sustainable mechanism of controlling the power of this institution. But as it is currently structured, that's the only one. And that's part of why I say what I say about some of the opinions, because like, you know, in their hands, who knows what they will do with them. Yeah, exactly. Because ultimately it just comes down to, do you really think, it, 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 the, the question in which you're, you're answering when you say that Title VII is safe, is just, do you think that these five people like Title VII enough right. that, <laughs> that, that they won't strike it down? Or, or do you think that like their lives will be miserable Right. By striking down Title VII because they won't get invited to symposiums and they won't be able to speak and people won't like them. Like, it's just a question of right. predicting, do these five people, do you think that you're going to just, you know, continue their lives as they, as they currently do upholding Title VII or not? It, it's not a question about like, what is the law? It's not a question of what does the Constitution allow? It's just, what do you think they're going to do? And I, yeah, uh, one way of reading that is, well, they said they won't strike down Title VII. So good. And another way of reading it is, wow, <laughs> I, I, can, I can imagine the precedent right. just as after, um, you know, that Nemundo case before yeah. Shelby County, like the court's like, the Voting Rights Act is upheld for now. Right. And then the headline is like, Supreme Court upholds, Court upholds Voting, Rights, Voting Act. Rights Act. Yeah, for two years. And then, right. oops, <laughs> couldn't see this coming. Right, exactly. Um so that's probably all we have time for. Thank you so much for giving us your time, particularly pre-tenure, Nico. We really appreciate it. Should we submit all of our podcasts as comments to the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court? Is that is that an idea worth pursuing? Um, yeah, or, or definitely press clippings because you know, the justices here <laughs> read those too. Right. So. Yes, I, also I true. I don't know if the transcripts are also clipped. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I'll start tweeting them out and hope that makes its way to the Supreme Court Public Information Office. Thank you so much, Nigo, for joining. Thanks to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thanks to Eddie Cooper, who makes our music. Thank you to the organizers whose demands led to this commission, even though they were not included on it. Thanks to Liam Bendixson, our intern for the summer. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to support the show now that the appeal is no longer funding us, you can do so at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny or by purchasing some merchandise, including a I dissent not respectfully shirt or a I burn for textualism one. So have a wonderful summer.